1: Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to spend it with us. Now, today is going to be fun. I mean, they're all fun, right? Or at least we try to make them fun. But we have a very special guest today, Viquette Benzison. If I didn't Americanize that too badly. Welcome, Viquette. How are you?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you?
1: It's good to have you. So, the fun part, so Viket is the D2C Customer Journey Manager Europe for Mars Pet Care. But as I think you're going to tell us, you also have a side gig, and we're going to talk about that side gig quite a bit. So I won't steal your thunder, so go ahead. Sure.
2: I'm Viket. I'm the Customer Generator, as you said. So my role is basically on this, the websites that we have and how the customers interact with it and what's their pain points and stuff. So I do a lot of A-B tests. Um, also surveys, interviews, get heat maps and all. And before that, I had different experiences in research. So I started my career in market research, then moved to customer service data analyzing. And now I'm here at Mars. And my sidekick is I do improv comedy and recently started doing stand-up. So we have a place called Boom Chicago here. It's English Comedy Center. And I've been taking classes there and for almost a year now. So I've been hooked. and. I love it.
1: That's very cool. Very cool. So, no pressure for the expectation that you, you, you got to be funny, right? Because I'm not. So, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see where that goes. And, you know, for our listeners, some of you might remember who attended IAX previously that for a few years, particularly in the Atlanta event, that Second City was a sponsor. And they had a very ambitious program entering into the research space about the role of improvisation and storytelling, et cetera, et cetera, and comedy as a technique to be used within the research space. I haven't seen them in a few years. So I'm not sure what happened with that, but I just always thought that was just incredibly cool. So to be talking to you, someone who's doing that on their own, that's just super fun. So tell us that story. I mean, how did you get into that to go from a researcher to also exploring, you know, comedy and improv?
2: So after COVID ended, basically, I was looking for a new hobby, a way to be social, but also kind of improve on something, that a skill that I have. And for my role at Mars, I do a lot of customer interviews. So I thought improv sounded a good option. And they had a taster class in the place that I take courses, just like a two-hour place, two-hour to learn how it looks like. And I did it and I was like, yep, I'm doing it. It's just... A, I was hooked right away and they have different levels of courses. So I've been doing it more and more and getting more involved in the community. Even though I live in Amsterdam, it's a huge English community here. So it's been quite easy to find places. And then one of the teachers. I didn't used to even watch stand-up to be very fair. But one of the cast members of Boom Chicago was giving like a four-week stand-up course. And I like him a lot. So I was like, oh, let me see how it's like. It was very different than improv. It was more scary than improv to me. Um, which I didn't expect, <laughs> but it's a different muscle to try out. So I've been doing that as much as I can as well now.
1: That's a neat way to say it, a different muscle. All right, so tie the two threads together. What, uh, obviously, I see the fun and, you know, and all of that. And of course, during COVID, finding something else to do. But what are the benefits you could see in your day job with research? How are you translating some of those things that are adding more impact and value?
2: Yeah, so I started interviews, for example. I wanted, I started improv as a way of active listening. So when I do the improv, you need to be very active listening. You need to really be able to act on the spot. And this is a really, really good skill when you do the research. So that's how it all started for me. And then I found different similarities between them. One of the key overlaps for me is how both of them actually use feedback loop a lot. So you need to have a hypothesis in what you think is going to work. and then you plan your, your joke or your study, and then you do the test or you go on stage and do it. And then the feedback is the main thing, right? In research, you try to understand what is the KPI, where you're trying to get at. And in comedy, it's the laughs. laughs. Did it work? Did it not work? Is it a slow laugh? If it's, if it's like a small one, is it a long lasting, loud, immediate, or kind of you have different measures of it and you try to understand and evaluate what worked, what didn't and kind of start the process all over again. So being a researcher helped me in comedy to really better understand this feedback loop, having this analytic mindset into my comedy. And I'll say vice versa as well. that It helped me a lot to understand these cues better and being a comedian helped me more com- be more confident in my life as well. It made me accept my quirky, weird sides of myself that made me more confident and open. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: So quirky and weird in comedy. What? Come on now. No. The, uh, <laughs> the So when I'm listening to you, I've never thought about it until now. So we're freewheeling here, guys, as an engagement mechanism, right? As a way to connect with the people that you're talking with, right? whether you're on stage doing a research presentation on results or on stage trying to get people to laugh, that understanding that dynamic of the engagement through those skills would seem to be incredibly beneficial to the process when you boil it down is that kind of one of the key metrics that you think about is that engagement that that energy transference that occurs with whatever your audience is
2: i think for research depending on what research you're doing so if you're looking at the customer research interview yes definitely I will say in servers or A B tests, it's different methods that I use. However, when I want to present the results to my odd, like my stakeholders within the company, then yes, I completely agree that I use comedic skills that I have to make my key messages in my research more understandable for my stakeholders. And so that more engaged they feel, the more they ask questions or en- engage with me, I understand that, oh, okay, my research is. Getting through
1: that. Yeah, I'm sure. Have you had, within Mars, people say, oh, we really want Vikat to present these results because she's going to make it more engaging than boring old me could do. Has that happened?
2: I'm the only researcher in our D2C team in Europe right now, so it's kind of already my job. However, when we do now office parties or office events, I'm always nominated as the host, which I love.
1: Uh, So that that doesn't get annoying because I've often thought with, you know, watching comedians to think, man, I wonder if they just get really annoyed with people that come up and, you know, tell me a joke, make me laugh. And that kind of, that on-demand process, but it sounds like, no, you actually, it's natural and you like it.
2: I don't like tell me a joke because I don't have that many jokes that stand up is new to me, but especially improv is something I do at least once or twice a week now. So Being on stage, just being on the, like being quirky and (laughs) spontaneous is something that comes up easy, but jokes, I don't have. Also with jokes, the problem, sorry, I'm changing the topic, but the problem with telling me a joke is a lot of the times jokes are not funny. Initially, you need to warm up to the laughing. So when someone says it's still a joke, even if it's the best joke, it's just not going to get the same reaction. So that, that I don't like.
1: Okay. So we'll get back into kind of the research part of this, but I'm, I'm dying to know. Favorite comedians, yeah, inspiration for you.
2: This is hard. I did went to Jack Whitehall the other day, last week, he was here. He's not my favorite, but I think he's a fun guy. Oh, I can't decide right now. I'm going to give an unorthodox answer. The reason that I get into comedy, it's not a non stand up comedian, but it's growing up, me and my family used to go on the trips, road trips. And my dad and my uncle, they're just so opposites. They love each other to pieces, but they're just like my dad is much more like strong and like planned and my uncle is more spirit spirited, like free spirit, spirited crazy man, but well in a good way. And just their arguments slash conversations together was one of the reasons I enjoyed comedy. It was just like fourteen hour drive, just made so much more fun. Just seeing the contrast, yet acceptance it was, that's what got into me. that's my inspiration in comedy.
1: Okay. All right. Good answer. The well, not there's a bad answer, but for what it's worth, this may give you some glimpse into my own personal insanity. I would say Robin Williams or George Carlin; those are the the two that would just guarantee to make me laugh uproariously uh, anytime. So this kind of absurd and incredibly cynical <laughs> combination of things. But anyway, so there we go. Now you know, and the audience knows that wow, Lenny's weird too. So to have those two as my own comedy stars. So you talk about vocabulary context around stand-up, setup, punchline, tagline. Can you talk about it and sorry, context, you presented on that at IX Europe. So since many of our audience probably were not in attendance, can you kind of summarize what the the gist was of your presentation with that idea of setup punchline tagline?
2: Sure. So my presentation in IX was about the overlaps between research and comedy and I kind of started explaining key stand-up terms in a way that the researcher would understand. Just to show the overlaps, also warm people up about, like, teach people about a bit of stand-up. So setup of a joke is basically the foundation uh, where you have the assumption of the joke. So that's kind of the hypothesis in research term, you would say. Hypothesis is where you have the assumption. And the punchline is the part that you have the statement, the big relief is the part that your joke is expected to get, the laughs. Um, So in this case, in research terms, that would be the having significant findings is the part that we you're looking for, actually. And tagline is not always necessary, but it happens in comedy, in in a joke that is a punchline that immediately follows another, is an additional punch that it follow the same punchline and doesn't require a new setup. So it's kind of like having additional findings in the research is not the main KPI main goal that you were looking for, but you explore your data and then you found some interesting things that works really well. So those are the three things that makes up a joke
1: and it's very much the
2: same line in research.
1: So when you're presenting findings, I assume that you kind of think about, I'm going to present in this way to be able to, you know, the structure. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's a cool way to think about it. Yeah. And actually, just think about like the grit report, for instance. We could learn a lot from that. So, <laughs> so that's pretty fun. So, as you think about your experience overall within research and people that you've met, you know, with throughout your career and organization, how would you inspire them to take some of these learnings that you've gotten? How would you condense that down and say, look, this may seem kind of weird at first but this is incredibly impactful and here's how it can benefit you what would that message be
2: do you mean how by using comedy
1: comedy and, and or improv yes either word
2: my advice to researchers would be one don't limit yourself to many things so one thing i realized in how improv helped me is being more creative in research i feel like a lot of times What blocks creativity in the first place is that we don't believe we're so self-critical of ourselves that when we have an idea or innovation idea, we kind of easily, ah this is not great. So we don't really let it out. Whereas an improv is just whatever comes to your mind, we learn to whatever comes to my mind, this is a good one. Let's try it out. So I will say, if you have a research question that you think is hard to test, don't limit yourself to the no. An improv is always yes and. So Put it out there, support it, get the support from it, and then see what happens before you take it out immediately. And also, humor doesn't hurt research. I think research tends to be too serious sometimes, and that's what I kind of try to say in my presentation as well. But comedy has a big skill. Even having a funny punchline, funny title, putting a gify on the presentation, unless it's a very serious, those things people remember more than a lot of the data that you present. And comedy is a really good way to engage people in an emotional level because comedy, it makes people laugh, but also think, and also even little embarrassments and things like that are the things that people remember the most. So comedy can really help you present your stakeholders with something that they will remember.
1: I love that. And it makes me think, I've been thinking a lot lately about the role of intuition and creativity and you know, kind of those really nebulous characteristics that we don't talk a lot about within the research space. We think data, 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 data. But to get to implications, it does take some level of intuition. It takes, you know, this combination of experience and critical thinking combined with that nebulous connection that goes off in our brains, or at least in mine. And any skill that helps, I think, inculcate that within the research community is a good thing. I think we, you know, there's obviously a absolute need for here's the data, right? But as the industry is shifting and, you know, we are in our seat at the table, those type of things, then we've got to think more and more around implications and outcomes, and that is a a creative process, right? to do that. So what do you think about the idea of that connection between kind of intuition and creativity and taking these skills that you've learned? Does that strike you as accurate?
2: Yeah, I think it's quite important. And to add to what you said, we live in a world where data and information is so much. The quality is a question, but we have a lot of information. We get hundreds of emails all the time. So it's just... Having an insight is important, but if people can't remember it or people can't process what you're saying, it's not going to be as impactful as you think. And I think intuition and having this, I'll say, creative way to engage with the people that you're talking to, goes a long way
1: to do it. Okay. Now on the flip side, right, then we're also prone to biases, right? So tips that you've learned in trying to recognize The bias stay away from it limit it as best you can while also gauging it more this freewheeling you know you know intuitive creative process
2: yeah i mean in a way i don't even know if they are definitely being creative i don't know if that means you have more biases per se i think it even possibly makes you be aware of everything like more holistically about what's happening but i would say for me, with my with the biases, comedy also reminded me how sample is important. So when you do study, like when you have a stand-up show, same jokes can work very well in one audience. So if I go on the stage and within a Dutch audience, I can make a Dutch joke better. Or being a short woman in the Netherlands is my go-to. So that kind of jokes work well. But if I go to have a jokes about in another country, that that doesn't work it won't same joke won't have same impact so i think that really every time i go on stage i have to be very aware of who is listening to me and that really helped me in comment in research as well to kind of think of your audience first who is your customer that you're talking to and what are they affected by or not so that's something that i keep in my head a lot there are also a few other biases i find in both of them that are quite overlapping (laughs) that i can share so for example, the order is of huge importance so in a stand-up show, for example, that in an open mic where there's a lot of stand- comedians go on stage. I find that, the, well, now I find it's known thing that the first comedian always gets the least laughs in a way because people are not ready to laugh yet. It's called even, there's even a the term for taking the bullet. Whereas after the second half and um, people are drinking more, which is a big variance in comedy, people are ready to laugh a lot more jokes tend to, to, tends to get more funnier. So it makes me really understand that same jokes, same delivery might have a hugely different impact on laughs depending on the order, the sample, which is a huge thing. It's the same in the research as well, right? So in a survey, you need to be very careful about which order of the things that you present. The first question needs to be easy. You know, Don't ask anything that might really relieve information about the next questions. Things like that, it really makes me understand the two of them in a head-to-head space.
1: That is a really, really cool point, and I'm glad you brought that up. I am, probably our listeners are sick of me always harping on this, but I, we have, fundamentally, we have an engagement problem within the market research industry when it comes to you know respondents. We suck. <laughs> we don't make it fun. We don't give many reasons for people to participate. It's not a, an engaging experience, and we have to think about that. More from a study design perspective, so I, I love that point of well, let's ease people into it, right? And obviously, we can't give them a few drinks. I guess maybe you couldn't a focus group in in Amsterdam. That may be <laughs> a thing. <Yeah>. <laughs> but <laughs> is there another division of Mars testing out other types of products in Amsterdam? But <laughs> anyway, we won't, we won't go there. But I just think that's just a, a wonderfully insightful point about. If we are, as an industry, our goal is to understand people and to connect that understanding to business outcomes, then we need to apply that at every level of the process, right? I, I think we, we get lost sometimes in the rigor and the rigor is important. By no means am I saying that we, we do not need to apply rigor and best practices, but we need to be human too. So is that, you know, something you've been incorporating in to, obviously uh, you you have, uh, we might guess into your, your study designs as well.
2: Yeah. So we try to, and also in the UX side. So I I do a lot of the UX is a side of it. I have also, for example, realized a tool, well, a strategy in comedy that is exactly the same in customer behavior. That is known. Uh, So there's something called, for example, rule of three. Have you heard of it?
1: I don't think so. Go ahead.
2: Okay. So rule of three in comedy is basically the idea that, well, in human psychology, that things happen, Humans process information in three is the best. So two is too little to create a pattern, four is too long to remember it or processes it quickly. So rule of three is in comedy, you do one thing normal, two thing normal, third thing is absurd. That is a joke. People expect the pattern and it fails. Well, it's different than what they expected, creating laughs. And in UX, you'll see a lot of websites that three benefits of this product, three key reasons why you should take it. There's all these like patterns of threes that you see in the UX side that is completely similar into how you experience in comedy as well, which I think is when I realized it when I had this comedy course about it and I go back to the website, we, we used to have four key benefits. And I was just like, no, 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 this is three. And it worked better, actually.
1: Wow, that is cool. And it also makes me think I tend to be repetitive and I'll say the same thing multiple times. And maybe I'm just, you know, see, I'm doing the rule of three, guys. I'm not just repeating myself for the sake of repeating myself. It's that intuitive knowledge. No, that's that's actually really fascinating. And I hadn't thought about it that way before. But that makes an awful lot of sense, thinking about websites that I you know, enjoy, and particularly those from a sales standpoint, from conversion. Yeah overwhelming ones, you just you shut down, right? But being presented with those three options. Now, how much of that came from so early in your career you worked with Valenks and shout out, as we talked about before, Valinx is one of the winners of the Insight Innovation Competition from IAX. Love their approach, very focused on unique methodology to understand behavior when it comes to you know pricing and choice. This is how I think about Valinx. So did that experience of working with them help kind of foundational perspectives on this idea?
2: This idea is in the rule of three or in general?
1: (laughs) The rule of three specifically, but in general, your approach in general.
2: I never thought about the rule of three, but my approach specifically, yeah, because this was the first, so I did academic research before, but that was my first commercial job and working in a very innovative place. And I was one of the first, like the company was quite new when I was there, so being part of that creative process of really trying to push the limits of what we're doing and how the methodology works, it was like a really nice way to join in. So I already started to market research from out of the box, like a new and behavioral approach to it. So I think my standards for research has changed a lot. So I don't necessarily just say, ah, oh, this started, like easy ways. Well, not easy with common ways to do it, but it always made me feel open to trying interesting and new ideas and new methodologies that might actually drive more behavioral research. And yeah, they've always been the great people to work with. <laughs> and I miss a in contact.
1: All right. So now thinking about your daily job now at Mars, you know, Mars is a lot, very large company, right? Has there been an openness within the organization to embrace some of these concepts? Are you finding traction overall among your peers or colleagues And wow, yeah, this really, this helps make a difference in how we do our jobs.
2: Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about innovative research, yes. So D2C team in Europe is quite new to start with. So we are kind of like almost like a startup on top of a big company. So we're very agile, very much. Let's try and see what happens. Let's see what we can do better and how we can do it. Trying to find quick and good ways to improve our performance. So in that sense. Yes, uh, being working at Waylinks and working in this kind of innovative environment does help. And in terms of comedy, it's they're quite open to it as well. And as I, for example, gave the example of Rule of Three, anything that I see from Comedy World, that seems to might be applicable to our website as well. I propose to test it, and everyone is always open to do this kind of interesting test that I come up
1: with as well. Well, it's got to be an easy audience. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, Puppies and kittens, right? I mean, so <laughs> your audience is already kind of softened up.
2: <laughs> we call our customers pet parents because people I see their pets as a you know kid, which is really cool. And sometimes I run as A-B, so about like different dog and dog pictures, and I'm like, wow, this is, this is a job that I love. <laughs> I can't complain. And there are dogs in the office, which is also amazing.
1: Oh, very cool. Now, are you a pet parent?
2: I'm not. I foster as much as I can. So I do that quite a bit, but not yet, let's just say.
1: You're like the aunt that takes the kids for the weekend, and but then you get to give them back. So
2: I'm the obsessed aunt, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> Got it. But when the time comes to settle down and be a pet parent and have that commitment, what do you think? What would be dog, cat? Where would you go?
2: Oof, I want them all. But I'll start with a dog. And for me, the main role, like main thing is, is like rescue dog. At the moment, just to clarify, so the reason I don't have a pet right now, um, I have hay fever and I live by the park. So if I get a dog, I don't want to not take them out. So I'm trying to manage my hay fever. So I'm going to start with a dog when my hay fever is better and rescue ideally. I would love a big dog, but I don't have space in Amsterdam. So <laughs> small to medium dog.
1: All right. Well, yeah, so we, if you come to the US, we have a 10 acre farm. And so we have two dogs and two cats and uh, chickens that are coming here soon. So you can come and play with our big dogs. Open invitation.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs)
1: All right. So thinking about if you could write your career trajectory from the lens of taking what you're learning and think five years out. What do you see yourself doing with this synthesis of you know insights and you know stand-up slash improvisation? Where do you see yourself being?
2: So to start answering your question, one of the things that I'm I like the most and I'm most ambitious in is not necessarily doing the research, but combining different insights we get from different teams and presenting to the non research people in the teams. So this is my short-term, one of my biggest passions. And as clear as always, I do love being on stage, and either for work or for comedy. And I would like in the long term, in five years' time, to be kind of like the public speaker of the team. So if there's an event going on, I want to be the person who is up there and talking about it. And I want to be, yeah. I think what that means is that if, We'll see what happens, but I would like to be in a place where I am trying to inspire people on whatever we're trying to inspire in that part.
1: Well, I think that it's probably safe to say that you'll be one of our go to people for IAX Europe. So, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> open invitation because God knows we need people that can make the audience laugh as well. So, not take the bullet. That's what our hosts are for. So, that's good. You don't have to do that.
2: <laughs> it was funny in the IEX. Also, I made people. It was nine a.m. on the second day, and I made people actually get up and shake their body for a bit. <laughs> I was like, oh. but it, just, it took a while for me. It was a very risky choice for the IEX, I think. But I think it paid up. So.
1: Good. So, so you did take the bullet. <laughs> I
2: really made everyone get up and like make funny movements and shake their body to wake up.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Definitely necessary, especially on the second day with people being out the night before. Yeah, that's gonna be important. What was your favorite part of Europe? Just what stood out for you?
2: Well, actually seeing the old colleagues, as you said, the mailings was there, so it was really good. And also taking some time off from my daytime job to really pause and listen to inspiring talks and actually get inspired and reflect was really nice. So, it kind of gave me a place to see oh, what we can be doing better with our team and things like that. So, that was really cool to see as well.
1: Was there a session that jumped out at you you're like, man, that, I'm glad I came just for that?
2: I can't say just. Can I simplify it to three? Can I do sure. something?
1: Do you, <laughs> you, know? can, you, you can do the rule three. Yes.
2: <laughs> Thanks. I love the Anika. Honeycomb- once, um, if I'm not saying her name wrong, she talked about the processes and that they use and how they action on customer feedback. And aliens. that was very cool to see. That was very methodological and throughout. And Helen Devin, she talked about how using customer research accessible to the other teams. That was amazing. And she's one of my favorites in previous years as well. And of course, Nicole and Jonah from Mars <laughs> was to talk about agile innovation. That was really cool. And that was nice to see some <laughs> colleagues from different teams. That's what I would say my top three. So I really like the process related ones, kind of the one, I mean, all of them were great, but the ones that talk about how to use research in a process and kind of agile way, that was quite interesting for me because that's something that we're trying to improve with our team as well right now.
1: Was there a a tool or technique that you saw that you thought, wow, okay, now this really has, you know, broad applications can make my job easier or or more impactful.
2: I can't remember the technique specific name, but with Hanika's slides, there was one thing about, I took notes, but one about prioritization process that they use. That seems very cool. And we were already talking with the team to kind of, make that prioritization process better as well so that was very cool to see
1: okay now what about the question now that has to be asked in every podcast or every webinar what about generative ai and you know chat gpt so yeah we we did a webinar a week or so ago and i introduced a drinking game every time that came up you had to take a drink so and, and here's my point ask that question for you right we think we're having this conversation about understanding humans and, and engagement and you know that whole component. But yet now we have a whole new tool set that's not part of the equation. It is an algorithm that may mimic those things, try to duplicate those things. So I'm just interested in your opinion on that
2: about general AI yeah, research.
1: <laughs> yes, and or in, in general, you know, what do you think that means for us as researchers? If we've established that we need to focus more on engagement and you know the rule three and the, all those things that, that, that those human connection components mm-hmm. that improv and comedy help drive, yet maybe relying more and more on tools that seem human but are not in terms of how the outputs that they come that they, they produce.
2: I'm going give the political answer. For you. I'm excited but also terrified. I think there's a lot of applications and it can even create help with creativity. It can like give you the boost to look into different things and get answers to things that you wouldn't have the answer to easily before and push your limits and make things faster and things like that. So I think it is useful in research and it cannot be denied. However, I am, as a human, kind of worried about it because, one, I mean, data privacy and things is just a big topic I'm not even going to go into, but I feel like I'm worried about almost human brain, how we process change over time. And I think this might be something that is just too fast for us and having all these answers, all this information so quickly, I'm just worried about, like, since social media, for example, our attention spam decrease significantly, it's a known and research thing. I'm really worried about what this AI means to our human brains in the future in the next generations to come.
1: I'm right there with you. I think that's a reasonable position. I'm glad I asked the question. I think that we as an industry have to say that like the pragmatic benefits from an efficiency standpoint, yeah, duh, right? Processing verbatims, you know, all of those things, of course, but you know, it's a little scary. I mean, I'll tell you honestly, I am not using it for summarization of information. Doing conducting research myself, right? If there's a topic I'm interested in, because I don't want to get lazy, you know, I'm doing it old school. So follow the lakes, right? Or wherever the case may be. And with our kids, not letting them utilize those tools. If they're for school projects, they need to to actually conduct research, not have the system do it for them. Of course, I'm also the guy who bought a farm in Amish country in Kentucky. So maybe I'm turning into a Ludite, but I think those are important considerations to keep our brains sharp overall. So anyway, now I'm proselytizing, so we'll I'll stop doing that. But I'm glad you have at least some similar concerns about our p- potential robot overlords. <laughs> so, all right. I want to be conscious of your time and our listeners' time. You and I could chat for a long time because this has been, been great. But what's on the horizon for you in 2023? What are you most excited about for the remainder of this year?
2: Yeah, I mean in comedy in my hobby worries, I'm doing more on stage. <laughs> I have already shows coming up, which I'm excited, especially on the improv side. I'm really looking forward to it. And it works. I already mentioned kind of the part about combining insights and kind of what I'm really fascinated with is like we get in the, in the D2C in e-commerce world, basically, we get a lot of data from acquisition tests and ECRM tests and you access all these things and it's just kind of feels like all the teams have this information mostly so what i'm do, trying to do better and better app this year is combining them and kind of trading bite-sized information for everyone to see what's happening in acquisition what's we what learnings we got from ux and how they're applicable what about market research that mars is working on and things like that so i am working on making it as understandable, useful, and accessible as possible. So that would be something that I'm very excited about for the rest of the year.
1: Cool. Very cool. And just to give us a little more insight into you and your copious amounts of spare time when you're not on stage and doing those things, what are you kind of obsessed with right now outside of comedy and improv? What's the thing that you spend a lot of time just doing this for relaxation?
2: I have a quirky thing again, I guess. So I like abstract painting but i have a specific twist to it i love painting with doritos
1: with doritos all right
2: (laughs) i literally crush them and stick on the paint because crashing is really fun and they don't go bad in in the paint I'm just crashing them and mixing with different paints and it gives a really good texture and it's it's just really fun to do so i do a lot of i like textures in painting and Yeah, Doritos are my go-to textures.
1: All right, now, nacho cheese or Cool Ranch or what flavor Doritos?
2: I don't don't think that matters. (laughs) (laughs) I would try it. I think I have Nacho here.
1: (laughs) Okay. So, and only Doritos, not any other type of tortilla chip?
2: No, I do with other things like toilet paper is really good to put on for textures. I do... Even like coffee beans or turmeric is a good color. So I use whatever I can find, but the just has been a signature. All
1: right. And so you get to stack while you're painting. I mean, I see that. That's wonderful. All right. Um, I am not going to share that with my kids um, as they do their own. I'm sorry. I don't want to deal with the mess. I can imagine. So, how can our listeners reach out to you? Where can they find you?
2: LinkedIn would be the easiest. Viket Banzasin is my name. <laughs> They can find me there. And my work email is paris at fm.com. So that's also, if you related, would be good. But yeah, I would say LinkedIn would be the best way.
1: Okay, now what about if they're in Amsterdam and they want to catch a show?
2: Ooh, there's a lot in English, as I just mentioned. Wait, there's actually even like a group. I can't remember right now. But Boom Chicago is my favorite place. There's central Amsterdam, very professional people. They do incredible improv. That's why I would suggest Boom Chicago.
1: Okay. Is there anything that uh, you wish I'd asked that I didn't?
2: Can't really think of on top of my head right now.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for presenting at IX Europe. I think that's, a, that's a great topic. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast and for really stimulating a great conversation. I think this is really good stuff. So thank you, Vicette.
2: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
1: No, at any time. Also, while we're giving thanks, a big shout out to our producer, Natalie, to our editor, James, to our sponsor, and to, of course, our listeners, because, mm-hmm. you know, you give us a reason. You give me a reason to talk to cool people like the cat. So I am deeply appreciative of you creating that opportunity for me. And that's it for this edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you very much. And we'll be back again soon.